Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, today's guest is uh, sitting across from me dressed in uh, comedy basic black, <laughs> apart from a lovely pair of uh, white white kicks with pink shoelaces. Uh, who are you, sir? <laughs> Is that a, yeah, that's a deep the, question already, that, or just that, do I give my name there? That, what, th- this is how the podcast starts. <laughs> I ask people who they are, okay. and then out of how they answer that question, okay. I draw some sort of conclusion <laughs> in my head. Oh, man, pressure's on already. Yeah. This is so... Are you going to show me, like, ink splotches and tell me what This is a I giant see? Rorschach test. My name is Nath Valvo. I'm a human being, Will. <laughs> Don't be so defensive <laughs> about it. Uh, I am Nate Falvo. I am a stand-up comic. And uh, yes, I have pink laces on my shoes today mm. for a bit of gay. I like it. Why I, not? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I like a coloured lace. Have you always been a, a person? Would you, okay, here's my question. Uh, yes. Did those shoes come with those laces or the, have those laces been ins- inserted into those shoes by your <laughs> they, own design? <laughs> they came with options when I did buy them online, Will, so I could get white laces or pink. I'm going to go pink. Why okay. not? And I have the black t-shirt on, so I have the comedian mm. outfit on, yeah. knowing very well that chances that you'd be wearing black. Mm. Comedy from the waist up. Would be quite high. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, I don't think Will's going to have pink laces, mm. so we'll throw them on. Now, I, I, I have always loved a, I remember back when I was a kid, there was a whole range of shoes that came out where you could change the, the colors of your kicks. So they had like, like these little kind of. You know, the pink. Velcro things on the side? Yeah, they're on the side, but they weren't Velcro. They were kind of, they had a little oh. holder where you could slide a piece of plastic in. Oh, this and, is before and my time. Tell me more about the, the 30s. This is so exciting. <laughs> this is a step up from I had was... to walk to primary school barefoot 10 yeah. miles a day. You've upped the story from my parents. Yeah, exactly. It was post Great Depression <laughs> and the world was <laughs> making a comeback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I love, I love shoes. I love kicks. I think a lot of comics do. Is that a weird thing that we're all into shoes? Well, it's stand-up comedy. So I think... Right. The idea of what you wear on your feet yes. is actually very important yes. to the job. I mean, it's literally, I mean, there's not many, there's a lot of other, just. Com, uh, there's a lot of other jobs where you stand up for a living, where it's not included in the title of the job. That's a good point. Right? You're not a stand-up doctor. Exactly. You? you can be. You can be. I've, Probably yes. important to have a good pair of kicks if you're a doctor <laughs> yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is true. And because I high kick a lot. I love a high kick, Will, so I like to draw attention to my feet on stage so they don't miss any of my moves because I have a theory that when I'm insecure about a punchline, I'll just add a kick or a twirl or I'll add some physical thing and then yeah. I've manipulated the audience into knowing that's when they laugh. Manipulated or <laughs> are you like a jockey who's got out the whip for the final 100 metres just to just get it across the really line? really bringing it home. <laughs> when I'm kicking you in the face, in the front row, you know it's the punchline. Well, the other thing is they're, they're there to laugh. Yeah. If you have to whack out a few of your tricks, if you have to bang a microphone stand into the stage to yes. get the joke across the line. Yes, Damien Power, who's a great comic, was the first person to bring it to my attention a few years ago. We were doing Roadshow and he said after the first night, you're the only comic I've ever met that uh, high kicks a punchline. And I don't know if that was a compliment. I think it was. It's why I've embraced it ever since, even more so. I've added even more, Will. I mean, there was a, a fellow by the name of Elvis Aaron Presley mm-hmm. who uh, used to do a lot of karate chops and karate kicks. And That's who stuff. I think about before I yeah. walk out every night. <laughs> <laughs> I also don't know if his middle name was Aaron, but it yeah, just no, came we to went my with mind it anyway. I went with it. I get, um, I get bored standing still yes. on stage. I feel insecure if the microphone's in the stand. I feel like I need to be on the move. So if anything doesn't go great, we've moved along mm. already. 
Oh, I'm over here now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no that, that joke that didn't work was way over there. Yeah, yeah, You'll yeah. notice that I'm way over here, yeah, so yeah, I have yeah. nothing to do with that joke. It's just nothing but smoke and mirrors <laughs> at an eighth valvo show. I'm interested, though. I Like, I know it, it seems like a funny place to start, but I, I'm genuinely interested in this because uh, I imagine that you are somebody who actually thinks about what they wear on stage. Yes. I, I certainly do. I like And Carl Barron, I know, years ago had a bit of a theory between soft shoe comedians and hard shoe comedians and what's a hard shoe well like a, a dress shoe or a boot all oh, right yep something yep. from tarot cash yep <laughs> so kind of shoe are you uh <laughs> what do you wear you wear runners on stage yeah yeah sneakers. comfort with yeah. a bit of color is what i like mm. love a sneaker with a color mate see i always wear well not always <laughs> yeah. like if i'm doing a podcast or whatever i'll wear my sneakers because i'll normally walk there yes but uh if I am performing in a theatre, mm-hmm. I will put on a nice pair of shoes. Sure, but that's I, yes. the rest of me is a mess. But okay. I will put on a decent yeah. pair of shoes yeah, for not? the theatre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel if I uh, put a blazer on or if I suit up, I feel very uncomfortable. I don't feel like I'm me, and I don't like it. You know, we have to often put a blazer on for paid gigs, or it'd be a corporate or something fancy. I don't like it at all. I feel very uncomfortable. You know, I want I, I like a bit of breeze. I even uh, I like a bit of flow under my arms. Will while yeah, I'm so, twirling. Well, what are you looking for? Because because <laughs> you you will have thought about this. I you strike me as the sort of person who go, okay, well, I'm going to do the show this year. Mm-hmm. Um, here's what I'm going to wear on stage. Do you wear? I'm, I'm very interested in this. I love it. Do you wear the same thing every night of your show? Uh, so if you're like, doing a show run, do you choose an outfit and then yeah. that's the? So, but I have two or three of them. Yeah. Okay. So I have. In the past, bought the same shirt three times, so I have it on rotation. Is that bad? No. Does that I'm, make me unique? I don't think it does, Absolutely does it? not. I have. I don't if know. you went to my wardrobe, yeah. it's fair to say it looks like, you know, what I imagine Batman's wardrobe would look <laughs> like. It's all just various versions <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. of the same That's thing. That's a Simpsons joke. When yeah. Marge Simpson opens her cupboard, it's the same dress. Yeah. Uh, but then the thing is, what I don't understand when I go and see comedy during a festival, I never pay attention to what the comic's wearing. If they're funny, they're funny. I don't ever go home and go... Will's jokes this year were pretty great, but those jeans, what was he thinking? Oh, I don't ever pay attention to that. I think if it's, as long as it's not distracting, you don't want what you're wearing on stage to be distracting. Well, of course not. How ugly are your jeans, Will? I just meant, you know, I just, I don't think about it with other comics. So I don't know why I think about it, but then you think about comics that do dress well, you could probably name them. So maybe it does make a difference. I don't know. Uh, well, I think it's more about what your head state is. Right. Like, cause I imagine, well, no. I, from my own personal experience, yes. what I like about wearing the same thing every night is that it feels like putting on a uniform to go to work. Oh yeah, absolutely. And sometimes as a stand-up comedian, it's hard to know when, because your job is essentially just, I mean, it's just doing what we're doing right now, but in yes. front of people and you know, like, so it's hard to know when it started unless you have some rituals around yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. the beginning of yes, it. Yes. Yes. That's very true. Yeah. I get what you're saying there. Yeah. And I do take the t-shirt off as soon as I have finished. I don't go out afterwards kind of thing in the outfit mm. show. You know what it's like, yeah. Will, you know, when you have a t-shirt <laughs> yes. and you wear it and then you wear that t-shirt to bed one night yes. for some reason, mm-hmm. you can never wear that shirt ever again out in public. You feel guilty. Is that just me? What if you put it? If I've, if I've had this t-shirt on and I've gone to bed in it, this is never leaving the house ever again, this t-shirt. What for just a hypothetical example, Dice? <laughs> yes. If you'd gone to bed last night and had a grey t-shirt and mm. then this morning you'd had that conversation with yourself, but there wasn't a t-shirt nearby, so you just put a black uh, shirt over the top of the grey t-shirt. I am so offended that 
as a gay man, I was just asked that I might not have enough clothes around, enough options, Will. Who do you think you're talking to? This is a man who has decided on pink shoelaces. You think I don't have backup T-shirts? How many T-shirts do you own, Will? Two? Three? Mate. But no. So, yes. Okay. Anywho, let's move on. Um, all right. So, uh I'm very interested. Let's start talking about comedy first because okay. we're already here and then we'll get to other stuff. All later. right. Because I want to talk to you about comedy because yes. uh, here's what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. I'm nervous. Look at my hands. Yes. I've just, I've just, I've ten, I have just I've tensed that. up. I've tensed up. Why did you tense up then? I don't know, man. Because I like you and I respect you and I'm scared about what you're going to say. Okay. Well, it's okay. Well, you've, <laughs> imagine if I just was like, Quit. your comedy is terrible. <laughs> Your shoes are great. I've, yeah, I've invited you here <laughs> to deliver your message on behalf of the comedy community. If only you put as much effort into your punchlines as you do with your shoelaces, Nate Valvo. No, the, what I wanted to say was actually the complete opposite, which is this, that I have said this to you privately recently, but now I'm going to say it you know, on the okay. podcast so that other people can hear it, okay. is that it feels to me that you are really in this incredibly sweet spot in your comedy career. I feel like you are in full command of what it is that you do. I feel like your approach to your you know, comedy is like has always been incredibly professional. Like you've always struck me as a person who's put in the necessary work and really, you know, mm. done the things that you need to do to get better at what you do. But now it feels to me like you are an incredible uh, incredible performer. You have really fantastic jokes. You are looking at the world from a genuinely unique perspective that is very much your worldview and what it is that you have to say on stage. Like for me, it feels like I said this on radio the other day, but I think that you're probably as good as any you know, comedian working in Australia at the moment oh, at what you do. And That's cool. Thanks yeah. man. Appreciate that. So, yes. Thank you very much. So what is your approach to your comedy? I would love to talk to you a little bit more about okay. you know, where you feel like you're at in your comedy career, how you got to hear how you actually approach putting together a new show. Right. Um, I think, uh, you know, hindsight's a very lovely thing. So I think in hindsight, stuff shifted for me a few years ago when I stopped caring about what comics thought, especially the ones at the back of the room at rooms. I didn't even do rooms because I was like, I mean, by rooms, I mean the pubs that we go to during the week to test new or lineup shows. I didn't really do any of that stuff because I was just so uh, imposter syndrome times a million that I thought, oh, no, that guy's going to, you know, she's going to not like that joke. or So... A few years ago, I just went, oh, no, I'm just going to do what I actually find funny and talk about the things that makes me laugh. And once I started doing that, things kind of really did shift a bit. So that's pretty cool. So I think that was the biggest thing I've learned the last couple of years. Even things like the triathlon clip that went nuts online a couple of years ago, teasing my partner doing the triathlon. (laughs) I've been sitting on that for like a few years, but I always just thought it was just not great or not funny because... It's just too easy to talk about fit people or that's not groundbreaking or that's not smart or that's not like all these things that I thought it had to be. And so once I just started doing the really basic stuff about like my parents, my family and my relationship and not wanting to go to a party, even like stupid little things like that. Once I just started embracing all of that stuff that I really want to talk about, uh, stuff just kind of shifted a little bit. It got a little bit easier very quickly. When uh, look, I think you'd be amazed at how many people have I- imposter syndrome of some kind. Mm. Like, I think it's a, a huge part of all of us to a certain degree. But the fact that, it, you know, you were, as you said, you weren't even going to play those rooms because you were worried about what the people up the back of the room were yep. saying. I got a great piece of advice early on in my career, mm. which like all great pieces of advice you get early on in your career, 
you don't get until you get them. Right. You know, that's it. Yes. When young comedians ask me for advice, I can say, I can give you heaps of really good advice, but you won't understand any of it yeah. until you go through it yourself and then finally yep. you'll understand it. But <laughs> somebody said to me, said, the problem with the back of the room is if you try to impress them, none of them pay for tickets anyway. Mm. They're the worst people yeah, yeah, to yeah. love your stuff. And because if they the do people love who stand stuff, at the back, yeah. they're, they're, they're getting free tickets to your show <laughs> anyway. True. You've got to impress all the people in front of them who've actually paid for a ticket to yes. the show. But what I get that we all want to have our peers think we're cool, to think mm. we're good at our job, to be impressed by us. We hate the idea of being mocked behind our back for mm. not being one of the, you know, the cool people at the back of the room. What were the fears inside your head about what they thought of you at that point that were holding you back? Yeah, that's a good. I used to, so my first few show, solo shows that I did at festivals everywhere, I did them without rooms. So I never used to write bits. I never used to write sets. I used to write shows. Thank you. It's the theater boy in me. So I would come at comedy as like a 50 minute arced storyline, backstory, beginning, middle, end. And so I was, I did like three or four festival shows before I did my first room. So... I was scared. I suppose it was like it, what I was talking about was easy kind of vibe. Oh, I'm talking about growing up. I'm talking about being a teenager. I'm talking about fights with my parents. I'm talking about nineties music. I'm talking about what happened to me in high school. I'm talking about my brother's hand-me-down blazer that my mum made me wear and I didn't fit into it ever. Still don't, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I just <laughs> thought it was too easy and I'm not sitting here saying it's changing the world, but does it have to? And so I think for a long time I was, I just thought it was too easy to hack, hack, maybe hack's a bit strong of a word, but you know, I wasn't doing politics. Well, cause hack, hack is also, it's not like everybody else has a blazer routine. It, hack no, implies, <laughs> it's like, right. oh, not another guy <laughs> with a bloody story about the hand-me-down blazer. Uh, yeah. So I suppose it was just, I thought yeah. because, uh, because it came to me easy, I thought it wasn't respectable or good because I didn't struggle to write those first few shows. If that makes Can sense. Can you remember how you transitioned from caring what those people thought to not caring as much? Or at least, I mean, even if you don't care, to be yeah, putting yeah, yeah. that aside so that you can do what it is that you do. Uh, I think it was seeing more other comics smash a room or smash a show and be awesome and them doing very similar stuff. I think I was just witnessing. I was like, hang on, what's the difference between Mm-mm's bit and that bit you've got? Just do it. Sounds very wanky, doesn't it? That this is the problem in my life that I was scared to get up at rooms and stuff. There's bigger problems in the world, but yeah, it took me a while to get my head around. Yeah. It. But also you're not here necessarily to talk about the world. We can, no. if you want to, <laughs> no, but let's talk about my favorite topic, yeah. me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this is the right place for it. Thank you, Will. And you're literally on a podcast called <laughs> <Yeah>. Willosophy. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you're in a safe space now. Yeah, That's sure. fine. Cool. But, um, I, I don't know what happened. Some fear just left and I just had a bit of, ah, oh, fuck it. Just do it. And so I started doing the rooms in Melbourne, just jumping up and it was fine. As soon as right. I started doing it, it was great fun. I was like, what the hell were you waiting for? What in your mind, was there a moment that gave you confidence enough that you could go beyond that and then just be yourself? Was there something that you achieved, something that you did a show, a particular show that you did a routine that was there a moment that you were like, Oh, you know what? This is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was the blaze of, it was the, no, it wasn't, but it was the, uh, the first time I got to do uh, a TV spot gala thing for the comedy festival, uh, it was the, on channel 10 still back in the day when it was the lineup gala thing, the comedy festival. And I got my first one of them and I did, uh, a bit about my mum always saying that she just sat down at, at the end of every day. 
so always going on. And I always thought that was one of those jokes. It was like, it's just so easy because I used to say that to my family all the time. What's so funny about that? You're a hack. And then I did it. And that was the most nervous I've ever been in my entire career. Still to this day was that first gala that I got at the Palais Theatre. You know, how many? There's 2,000 people. It's being filmed for TV. I think it's more. I think it's it, nearly 3,000. Oh, great. Well, I'm happy yeah. you weren't there backstage. But, you know, to make it even worse as like a young up and coming comic, every single person in the industry. So this isn't just a comedy thing. This is no matter what your job is, just picture every boss that you have, everyone that's in your industry, all the respected people that make decisions are all in a tent backstage watching it on a screen. Comics, people you look up to, uh, agents that you know, make decisions, producers, all of them are watching. And I was like close to vom. I was so close to spewing that night. I was shaking. I was so nervous. My first few words came out really weird, you know, it's the longest night of your life because there's like 26 comics on. I was like second last. Oh, it was hell. The sweet spot. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The ninth hour of comedy. Who's yeah. this guy in his pink laces? And so uh, I was really nervous and I double thought about that bit for weeks leading up to it, thinking this is the wrong bit. This is the wrong bit. Do something smarter, do something better. And that bit. Um, took off and it like smashed it and it went really, really well. And all these people online found it. And then people were coming to my show at the comedy festival yelling out, we've just sat down and like saying the joke back to me. And so that was the moment I went, oh, okay. There's like a sweet spot in that kind of suburban everyday commentary. Stick with that, Nath. So uh, I kind of have since then. It's a really interesting moment. There's so, so many comedian graduation stories that Melbourne International Comedy Festival Gala is yep. such an intrinsic part of feeling like you've arrived in the big times. Yes. Uh, did you grow up watching it? Mm -hmm. Like, were you like the sort of person? Of who, course. Yeah, yeah. On the VCR. I think when I was super young, I think my, I think there was a couple of times my parents recorded it and then the next day fast forwarded a couple of the acts that they didn't want me to see. I think I have a memory of that happening. And I remember being, yeah, like late teens jumping on the train from Greensboro into the city to see stand up. Yeah. I remember doing that. It was a huge thing based on who we saw on the gala. So it's always been a, I think it's been a Melbourne thing more than other States for sure, but it's been a very concrete, like definitive line in the sand thing. And it sounds a bit overhyped or it's a bit stupid to think that if you haven't got that, that you're a bad comic. Cause that's a crock of shit. Cause we could yeah. sit here and name a oh. bunch of comics that haven't got it that I think are amazing. There are a variety of factors that of go into it. Yeah. And so it's stupid that that's what's used, but and it's a television product, which means yes. that cause People I get... made, I made a decision a couple of years ago that my management are trying to talk me out of, but, uh, th that I would say no to the office mm -hmm. from now on because you know, I'd, I'd done probably, nearly 20 of them over the years. I've hosted it a few times. Like I'd felt like if I didn't say no, then they would keep asking me, you know, right. because it's a television product at yep. the end of the day as well. So what they need to do is ask the people that they can run on a TV ad when they you know, broadcast it on the television as well. Yeah. But the problem is it doesn't really make any difference in my life anymore. Whether I, sure. whether I go and do a great gala spot this year, isn't going to sell me an extra ticket. Mm. It's all it's going to be is a spot that they could have given to somebody else to have that, you know, the experience yeah. that you're talking about yeah, right sure. now. Yeah. And part of being good for your industry, and I have only, you know, in the last few years started to have this conversation with myself, but also to understand it, which is to create space for other people. And sometimes when you create space for other people, that will mean that 
part of that is you stepping aside, mm. you know, so that somebody else can have that space. Yeah. Right. So they, there's a myriad of factors is my point. So mm. the reason that they ask Husey every year to do it is Husey's one of the greatest comedians this country has ever produced mm. and they can run Husey on the ad. Yeah. It's not Husey's fault, no. <laughs> you know, um, but not everybody gets that opportunity, but it is an opportunity to graduate. So you grew yes. up watching stand-up comedy? Were you yeah, a, a fan of stand-up comedy? Was it something that you aspired to do? I love showbiz, love TV, love movies. I used to love like Full Funnel and Big Girls Blouse and Monty Python. Yeah, and, so sketch uh, comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I was uh, in high school, me and two mates started a sketch group called oh. The Shambles. Look out. Shambles? Yes. And when we were, as soon as we left school, so I was just turned 17 or 18, we went and got a video camera. Yeah. One of those flip ones that tourists still use. Uh, when I got an iMac computer, the big ones, uh -huh. you remember iMovie that's still there? Yeah. And iMovie is just that real basic editing program that's meant for mum and dad to edit a family holiday. <laughs> and we made a TV show and we just created characters and got our parents' clothes and invented all these stupid skits and filmed this show and sent it to Channel 31 and said, put us on. And they did. And it was a really cool time because... YouTube wasn't around yet. Everyone still watched satellite TV. So Channel 31 used to actually get viewers. Um, Rove and that gang and Hamish and Andy were on. So there was like people on it that were getting like respected. It was kind of exciting and cool. Just these three teenagers with a video camera. Looking back, some of the skits are truly horrific, but some are all right. And then we did uh, like a, a bunch of seasons on how Channel many, 31. How many seasons did you do? three. And how many episodes? Oh, like 15 or so. Shut so, up. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. All, all non-paid. Yeah. Um, we had little part-time jobs on the weekend or whatever just to get money. I mean, we still live with our parents. It wasn't yeah. the hardest life. But uh, so we did that. Um, and then because for the young people listening, when YouTube wasn't what it was, uh, MySpace was what it was. So we would upload things to our MySpace page and then that would go off. And people would watch Channel 31. And then we thought, well, maybe we can go into a live show. So we did our first comedy festival as The Shambles Live. And it just went gangbusters. Like we sold so many tickets. And we had merch and people would buy it. And so we had this like four or five years of just this like amazing, no boss, no agent, no producers, just did everything ourselves, edited everything ourselves, did our own promo. And it was really fun. And we were just... You know, I was in drag some of the time. Some of the time we were dressed as like priests or the devil or we did dance routines. We were just absolute idiots. What an amazing. It was super fun. What an amazingly fun time. Yeah, yeah. it was really cool. It and sounds then, fun because yeah. you really are just, I mean, because it is also, you're still on that vanguard of, like you said, pre-YouTube, pre-everybody having a high quality, you know, Yep. Phone, video phone camera. Yeah. Like, you know, now, it, you know, you can make a feature length, you know, movie on your mm. iPhone. But back in these days, there was still this element of like DIY, but also creating your own success, like doing it with some friends, creating something that people liked and then that they came out and saw. I was unaware of your shambles past. <laughs> the skip past. I'm, I'm <clears throat> very uh, fascinated by yeah, this. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And then, uh, Shock Records, or uh, like a label, said, "Oh, we want to re let's release it on DVD." A record label. So then we got a DVD Do made you. of our Channel Thirty One show. Look out, JB Hi-Fi, 
And um, so they print, you know, back in the day would have been what, probably like 2,000 copies right. or something, which is huge when you're 20. Yep. And so we got a DVD released of our little show that we made in my bedroom on my Mac. And then that got nominated for an ARIA for best comedy. <laughs> but I think we only got nominated because they didn't have enough people to fill the category. Uh, look, they, <laughs> they, there was certainly a period of Shut time. Shut up, Will. Don't ask questions. We got nominated for an ARIA. That's all that matters for Wikipedia. Uh, and so it was just this crazy like finale. We got, we got to go to it. And I remember taking pingers with some of the Australian Idol evictees. And that was a night I'll never forget. But sounds, that's for another time. Won't sounds, name sounds names. about right. <laughs> yeah. Won't name names. Who was, was hosting the ARIAs that year? Where was it at? Do you oh, remember? Oh, we went to Sydney. It was... Um, Maybe it was somewhere in Homebush, maybe, yeah, out there, I think. they used to I have think. it out at Homebush. I think That's it was right. there. I think it may have been hosted by Hamish and Andy, maybe. Oh, but okay. I do remember them being there. I don't know if they hosted. I don't know. Honey. I don't. But Honey. anyway, and so that was <laughs> that was my intro into all this stupid industry. Well, that's a very interesting way to get into it, though. Yeah. Because you had this kind of mini career doing something. So how does the shambles finish like why aren't why is the shambles no more uh so we did like five or six years of live touring which is a lot so that's like you know a lot of time together a lot of shows a lot of writing um and we're still friends it's all good mm. but it just got to a point where we got pretty close with like sbs we got pretty close like we chat with abc but nothing really ever came of it and you know, I was like mid twenties now and I wanted to like have a bit more money and I know I just was like, oh, I think we all kind of decided to have a couple of years off and just see what happens. Are the other shambles still in showbiz? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, yeah, Lynchy's um, involved still with like production of shows and stuff. He helps me with my show. Sometimes I get him on board to like tell me what's funny and not just before I go on stage. <laughs> so he's directed a couple of my live shows because we work well together. Um, yeah. And then when we took that couple of years off, we kind of just didn't come back. Is there any chance that the other shambles are sitting around seeing your success and going, <laughs> this is our meal ticket. You know how like uh, Gautier, uh, had that, um, uh, the basics, the basics, right. Yeah, and yeah. then he became like the biggest musician well, the in the world. Have got, they're back together. The basics are back. Yeah. 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 Right? yeah. Maybe. And we'll see. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, it's just. Doing skits is just so much effort, Will. You're sitting backstage getting zipped up in a bloody teddy bear costume going, oh, for fuck's sake, I can't wait to just do stand-up. Oh, man, I can't. <laughs> so I've never done sketch comedy yeah, at yeah, all because I can't do accents or characters or act. It, so when you, If you look up the shambles, you'll see neither could we, <laughs> Will. Nothing stopped us. Aria nomination. <laughs> um, but, yes, I remember early on in my stand-up career, I had one bit where I had the words to, uh, do you know, remember song two by Blur? Mm -hmm. And so my the Who Who song? Yeah, the Who Who song. Yeah. And uh, I my opening bit was like, because the, the words up to the Who bit uh, <laughs> don't make a lot of sense. And so I would have the I didn't know there were, there were other words yeah. in that I song. I had my head checked by a jumbo jet. It wasn't easy, but nothing is Who Who. Um, and then some other it. things. Well, because it was my opening bit for ages, the music <laughs> would play. And then I would have these cards that would have the, the actual lyrics on the cards and it was like a bit, I had a whole bit around it. Yeah. Right. But then I realized I had to bring the cards to gigs yes. and I was like, this is this nothing worse than a bit's prop. Not that good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like sometimes I do watch a show at a comedy festival or something and see a great prop and I love it. And then in my head, I'm like, Oh, I had to get that here. 
Did they buy that in each state? Did they fly it? Is that carry-on? I have so many questions about props when a comic uses one. Oh, I went and saw you too. <laughs> yeah. And they had like the biggest, you know, screen ever. Ever. Yeah. And that's like, good for the planet. Well done, Bono. Half of the concert. <laughs> I was literally like forgetting that they were singing because <laughs> all I was doing was like, so they must have their own plane that of they just course. put the screen on. But yeah. how do they get the how do they get the screen? Into the plane, yeah. Like, did they did they drive this screen down the? Yeah. What happened? See, like <laughs> props just distract you from with or without you. No, everyone else was crying, and you're working out logistics, you nerd. But uh, so maybe there was a bit of that. I needed a bit of a break. But um, having said that, I think the the skits and the kind of that kind of background shapes my shows anyway. Because I look at my shows as little segments. I break up things, make sure it flows. Like I think I write my solo stand up as quite skittish anyway, so I think it's still there. Uh, minus the outfits. What who were your the stand ups that you liked when you were being influenced by stand up when you're watching the gala and coming into sure. town to see people? Um so here's how do I say this politely? I don't love watching stand up. I don't watch stand up. I never watch specials. I don't sit at home and watch it. I watch it live. Of yeah, course. do you enjoy it's it live? Great. Sometimes, some like most of the time, I'm working, so can't always enjoy it because sometimes I'm on next or got my I, show coming up, and I, I get a bit hate nervous. Filmed stand up, hate oh, it. You have to see it live. Hate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It absolutely. is the this this new and look, I've put out you know DVDs yeah. and specials and all these sort of things. Are you nominated? Because you, you have to. No, well, actually not. I'll give you some tips when um, you come on my podcast. <laughs> how to get Aria nominated? Uh, so. <laughs> This is, um, I, I think it's actually, it's great for the art form because it gets it out to people who could never go and see it live. Yeah. But if you've only ever seen stand-up comedy you know, on a DVD, on Netflix, on, mm. you know, Stan or whatever, yeah. then you are missing out because yes. it is a live experience and being in that room with those other people experiencing those jokes in the same way as they're experiencing those jokes in that show is something that can never be replicated yeah. by there's a, filming. There's a tension in the room yes. that you break as a comic. Having said that, if you're listening and you fund specials, I would love to do one. Uh, send me an email. Uh, shambles at <laughs> no. yeah, um, shambles you know. at yahoo. Yeah, I'd love, <laughs> I'd love, uh, I'd love to obviously make one and I want people to watch it, but yeah. I feel just everything that you said times 10 and a perfect example would be, I saw, uh, this is just an example, Michelle Wolf at the comedy festival this yeah. year. It was easily one of my favorite shows. I absolutely loved it. And then that show is now a special and gave it a couple of minutes the other night. I'm just like, there's just, she's an incredible stand up, and there's just something missing a little bit. Is that bad? No. She doesn't listen to this, but yeah. But it's not about her. No, it's nothing to do with her. It's, it's, it's that you're not in that audience. Yeah. And she's having a conversation with an audience in the room yeah. that you are not part of. When you're in the room, you're part of it. Like I'm doing improvised shows at the festival this year, and part of the joy of those shows is that literally it's the only night that anybody will see this show and everybody in the room knows that it's the mm. only night that everybody's going to see that show. So good or bad, mm. we're all in this experience together. And there's an energy and excitement in that, that if you then filmed that show and showed it to somebody else, they wouldn't have that because yeah. they weren't in yep. the room the night having yeah. that feeling. I also early on was so uh, doubtful of how I did stand up. Sometimes I thought if I watched someone, 
and loved them, I'd do them a little bit mm. next time I jumped on stage. Yeah. And like, I could, I could even hear it in my voice a little bit that I'd maybe seen them recently. <laughs> and I think that can happen sometimes. If you've watched someone and love them, you can start to accidentally do some of their bits. Yeah. Well, um, or just their mannerisms. Or of their, course. Their, you know. Yeah, I'm not doing their bits. Not, no. you know, jumping up doing Hughes' bit about his two kids. A little bit obvious. <laughs> but uh, I do have, a, I do have, a, like, I think the most I've ever laughed, I can, I do know this, the most I've ever laughed at a show was Judith Lucy when I was a bit, it was, I don't know how many years ago, she did a show called I Failed mm -hmm. about her soiree into yes. breakfast radio. That's the most I've ever laughed live in a, in a room with someone. So I do remember leaving that going, holy shit, like, I want that. Like, imagine being able to do that to everyone every night. I do and, remember that. And imagine being able to turn, because that show is one of her, I mean, there's no bigger Judith Lucy fan than me. Like, I think she's the, you know, really pound for pound, the greatest comedian, stand-up comedian that I have ever seen mm. in this country. And her body of work, you know, is just exceptional from yep. start to finish. Like, you know, and I just such an incredibly huge fan of hers, but that show in particular is just such a great example of taking such a terrible time period in her life and turning it into something but just so, so funny, so, so funny, funny and so magnificent yeah. and so powerful. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I remember seeing you when I was quite young. I can't remember where in the city, but trained it in with my friend Luke. We went and saw your show, yeah. saw Drew's show, saw a bunch of shows. I do know that I love punchlines. Now, I don't know who taught me that, and I can't put my finger on what comic I saw early that would just have a punchline. <laughs> and fine if you don't, uh, but I, I get pretty insecure pretty quickly if I haven't said a joke quite recently, if I'm on stage. No, I like that too. Like yeah. I'm a punchline person. Yeah. Like I like there to be, you know, if you don't like th that one, here's another one. Yeah. Do a high kick and away <laughs> yeah. you go. Smoke. Well, I can't do a high kick anymore. Smoke My hips machine. are too bad for that. But uh, Yeah. So I, I was, I think I was more into bigger picture kind of TV, you know, showbiz, a bit of showbiz in general. I think I was way more. Okay, so what, what what was your first solo show? When did you do that? Uh, my first. We'll solo get to a philosophy uh, in yeah, a minute, oh, but good. I'm enjoying talking about uh, your yeah, stand up yeah. career. Yeah. Um, what was my first my first solo show? I didn't do the mainstream festivals. I did Midsummer, which is a festival celebrating like queer artists mm. in Melbourne, and I did. Seems a bit distasteful. <laughs> uh, and so I did an hour show, uh, on my, just my coming out story. That was the theme. It was my first ever show. So that was what, 10, 11 years ago. And the whole hour was coming out, uh, how I came out, the story of coming out, mm -hmm. all that business. Cause that's another thing I thought early on was, um, mainstream doesn't want to hear about this. I'll just talk to the gays. How, well, but now, yeah. now I'm going to ask you those questions. Yeah. You know that, which is yeah. like, how did you come out? Uh, <laughs> I came out, I think I was drunk. So basically I came out when I was 22. So how long had you been aware? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a really good question. The, the reason I can never answer that question is because again, hindsight is yeah. so powerful and we all know everything. We know why you broke up with someone in hindsight, but when you're there in it, you don't know what's going on. You don't know why you were doing it. So I think, of course, I think I always knew, yes. but denial, it can never be, if you're not a, a, a queer person that's never denied it, I, it's very hard to explain how powerful it actually is. It changes the way you think, how you can push things out. Like I had girlfriends, I, you know, it just pushes things very, so far down that you don't even know. So I think I was in denial for a very long time, but I started doing 
mucking around a little bit when I was like 18, 19, <laughs> getting amongst it. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I reckon like, okay, yeah, I've landed here. And what on, were you on the fi- gay train? When you were 18, 19 and you're starting to you know, muck around a little Thank bit, you to as the you internet. Say. Thank you to the internet. The internet changes it all for, for right. me and a lot of people in my generation. So the first few guys that I met uh, were from the internet. Sounds very safe, doesn't it? Kids, jump on board. If you're going to take anything from this podcast, meet men from the internet. <laughs> so that's when I, and I was anonymous and I had a fake name and I had a fake account and everything was fake, 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 fake. So there was no huge step yet, even though I was talking to men online and they were driving over to Greensboro and meeting me in car parks and roller rink car parks and hooking up. One guy told me he was on his peas. There was no peas in his car, but that's mm. a confession for another podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, the internet was a huge, was my introduction into that world of other men that were up for it. And so a few years of doing that, then started telling some of my friends most of the time when I was quite drunk or off my face out and about. There's a couple of times we were at a club. It was about midnight, 1am. And I'm like, let's go to Peel. They've got good music there. Peel is a very infamous gay club here in Melbourne. And so I think I told a few of my friends that I was going to Peel for the music <laughs> for a few months. How did, how did, <laughs> did you think your friends were fooled by your yeah. oh, masterful cunning plan? Nothing says you love women more yeah. than dragging a bunch of mates to Peel at 1am to dance to Britney. Yeah. Nothing <laughs> says what a bloke in these shoelaces. Yeah. Uh, so I think the polite, I had a joke in my show a few years ago, which was, hey, young people in denial, PS, your family know. Yeah. Like very rarely are they surprised. I think it's really sweet how polite everyone is for young people that obviously may be there. Uh, it's really sweet, the show everyone puts on. I know my family put it on for a while. My friends put it on. They were all kind of just like, we'll just let you yeah. Get there on your own. Yeah. And even when you we do. All, we all know. <laughs> yeah, we've been but, waiting. Yeah. It's, but it's, uh, we're waiting for you to be comfortable. Yeah, yeah. So when I did go, all right, it is time to do this. Uh, it wasn't great. And this is what sucks because when when you tell this story, I sometimes I get annoyed about it because I don't want to do the storyline that we've seen a million times in movies and TV which is, it's hard and it's depressing and it's scary and a lot of tears because I don't want it. I want to change the narrative because it shouldn't be that. It should just be a nothing thing. But unfortunately, it still was a little bit for me. I, I struggled a lot with it. Um, took me a long time to come out to my family. Uh, saw a therapist about it. Had to go chat about all things gay and how to do that kind of thing. And the therapist gave me a very good piece of advice, which you, you should all do. She said, uh, write a letter to your parents uh, put down everything that you want to say and why you're maybe scared to say it or what you think, all, all your thoughts and feelings, put it on paper and then never do anything with it. Just get it on paper. That's all you have to do. You can throw it out. You can burn it, save it in a drawer for when you're 80, you can get it, just do nothing. Like there's no pressure. And so I wrote that letter one night and then I gave it to my mum. Weirdly, I didn't think I would, but then I, I didn't do it at the time, but I finished it and it was all kind of there on, but it wasn't the longest thing. It was kind of just more of a confession or just here it is. And then, um, I think I went out and had a bit of a night <laughs> and got home a little bit happy, a little bit confident. I'd had a few and just like walked into, woke mum up, <laughs> mum, get up. She's like, what the hell what are you doing, Nathan? Kind of thing. And pulled her into the lounge room at like 1.30 in the morning and gave her a letter and came out. 
How funny is that? And the first thing she said, it was something like, you know, couldn't this have waited to the yeah. morning or something? <laughs> it was yeah. just so like, yeah. whatever. Yeah. She's like, I've waited a long time. I've, <laughs> no. I've, I've known about this for a fair for, while. Like 22 years. Yeah. I could have waited until tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah. And then she left it a few days yeah. and then gave the, oh, I always knew brag. God, they love a brag, yeah. don't they? It's like when you pick the twist to a movie, people love that when you come out. They love telling you when they knew. It's like, I oh, knew it. It's like I wasn't. I knew it. Mate, I was writing plays when I was 15. It wasn't the hardest case to crack here, guys. But, um, you know, and as most of my mates have told the same kind of story, as in it's a lot harder to tell your dad. Uh, we all know why. We don't know why. We all know why. And so I think a lot of us tell mum, knowing very well, dad will find out about an yeah. hour later. So she did my job for me. And then I think she was on the phone the next day and told every single person in her phone book, which is great. <laughs> I think some people think that when you tell your parents, it's like the first step. No, no, no. It's the last. They're the last people you tell because you know, once you tell them it's, it's on. Nail in the coffin, you're out. So, and after that, it was so easy breezy. There was no drama. No, I know people do care. And I know there are stories out there where families do care. Of course they do, but no. Nah. I think we need to tell more and more stories where it doesn't matter because well, it didn't. No one cared. A lot of lovely messages, a lot of hugs from aunties or uncles next Christmas, you know, just kind of just, it just became what it was very quickly, very easy. I think the biggest concern my parents had was that I wanted to do showbiz, I wanted to do radio, I wanted to be me on a stage. And I think they were a bit scared about that, you know, and that is out there. Like, my God, that's absolutely out there. I remember did a gig with Husey a few years ago. <laughs> this is not, this is just to say, of course it is out there. Uh, we, I did a gig with Husey. I did really well. It's a really nice time. And then uh, walking to my car after the gig, quite a drunk gentleman came up to me at the front of the Athenaeum Theatre in Melbourne and said, never put me through that again, you kitty fiddler. And then walked off. And so, and up until that point, I had never experienced anything to do with like the gay stuff on screen or on, on, on stage. I meant I was doing radio at the time. No one ever cared. No, never ever to my face feedback about it. And there it was just this bomb. And the really good thing about it, and this is why I do love being a comic and I love our community, told Hughes and a bunch of people. And then Hughesy was like, your comedy wasn't that bad. <laughs> like, your set wasn't that bad. And... I just laughed so much and we all just laughed so much. And then that's where the power of comedy is like taking the piss and bringing it back. And then I did a bit about it and I put it in my show and claimed all the power back and made a good joke out of it. But you know, some people out there do care. I mean, some, some people some out the there other, yeah. still, still do care. Of course I they mean, do. I mean, 40% of this country that voted didn't want us to be able to get married. Like that's a not a nothing number. That's, I'd love to see the number now though, because of course. In, in different countries, what happens it traditionally is the, the vote number might be a 60, but there's a 10 to 15% of that who don't really care, but have been convinced by these arguments that mm. something bad will happen or whatever. Mm. And then a year later, two years later, when they've realized that, oh no, my life's completely exactly I mean, identical. Depends the who you ask, Will. The be. country is on fire. I mean, yeah. there's some evidence. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> but this is the point. Then there's your Israel Falaus <laughs> yeah, yeah, who... Yeah. You know, think the country's on fire because yeah. gay people got married. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. 
It's, and um, I guess the evidence is the country is on fire. So, jury's still out. I tell that story just to, you know, obviously I'm not, my head's not in the sand. I know that stuff yeah. is out there. But, you know, the flip side to that is the job I get. I get to go to a lot of places and do comedy. The comedy festival has a thing called the Roadshow where you're out, literally out in towns of 1,000 people, 2,000 people, all across WA, across. I've done all of them and they've all been amazing. Just awesome gigs, kill every night. They love everyone. You know, heaps of people come up to you in the foyer. I've had times on Roadshow where people have like brought their gay son over so I can meet them because apparently we need to meet, mm. <laughs> which is cute. So, you know, the, but, uh, the but other also, side a is lot of the a lot time, bigger. A lot of time, I imagine those things are very much about th- them, you know, going, look how happy this guy is. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you, you, you talk about. Before you said, you know, you don't want to say that it was hard and you don't want to say that it was all this traumatic because it shouldn't be, mm. but it still is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you acknowledging both those things is very powerful, which is that it was hard for you to get to that point. But when you got to that point, you were accepted really beautifully. Yeah. Like, because if you don't say it was hard to that point, if it was, if you don't tell your truth, mm. then somebody else who also, who was also hard for thinks that there's something wrong with them, yeah. that it's hard. Yeah. 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 There's a bit it, of shame attached to right. the fear. Yeah. 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 And, totally. and you know, the idea of them saying, Hey, you know, I live in Bunbury and it turns out that my son doesn't have 70 gay friends. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, so mm. the fact that there's this guy in town doing. Or either do I. Gay, <laughs> gay people are very difficult to be friends with. It's quite exhausting. I have a, crew of about four. Uh, but yeah, uh, but I, I mean yeah. more like you you work in show business, right? Yes. So it's not like you're going to be the only gay in the village. No. And, of course. I'm know. not in finance. No. I'm not in construction. I get it. Yeah. And I know I am in a bubble sometimes, yeah. but I just meant that that bubble does travel and we yeah. do get to go out to those kind of places that, you know, a, a lazy person would assume would have an issue and they very rarely do. But, um, but yeah, I just tell that story just as an example of why the fear still does exist for, for, our, for people, you know. Um, from the outside, it feels like things are getting better, but like, mm. it's very easy when you're on the outside to yes. say that things are, you know, oh yeah, progress seems to be going really quickly now. <laughs> yeah. But for the people who are being demonized by the progress, it, it, it doesn't ever feel, you know, so yes. quick. It's just a constant exhausting fight yes. that we kind of can't be bothered with. Yeah. I can't be bothered all the time. Has, do you feel like since the marriage equality vote? Anything has changed oh, in that regard? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think the, what I always laughed a lot about the d- debate about letting the gays, love the word letting and allowing, always loved those words, allowing. Letting the uh, other yes. members of our society have <laughs> yeah, equal yeah. rights to oh, us. Thank you for letting me a, get married. I have allowed you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. fellow human beings. What I always found funny about so many of the arguments were, um, your anti-family, your anti-family values, you're the antithesis of what I want society to be. But we're sitting there going, are you drunk? We're sitting here saying, we also want to be that. We want to start families. This is what we're signing up for. We're, we want to yeah. have unions. We want to have civil partners. Like we want to have things, rec- not everyone, yeah. just, you know, some. We, we're, we want to come with you. So why are you sitting here saying... You're only this one thing when that's the only one thing you're letting us be. And so I feel for Cody and I, we've been together for six years. So we've been together for ages. Um, it completely shifted our relationship, like hugely. The Just the vibe between us and just the way we are with each other, the way we talk about the future and what we're going to get up to and stuff, that's all shifted completely because there's a weird, if you want it now in a same-sex relationship, there is now something to work towards if you want. 
that was never there before. So I feel, I don't want to speak on behalf of an entire generation, but I've got, you know, mates that are a lot older, uh, gay guys, to see, and we've spoken about it. They just seem to have no appreciation or about long-term relationships or any kind of value towards them because I just don't think they ever thought it was possible. And so I think the real effect of the same-sex marriage will be the people that are young now. So not us, maybe not even the teenagers. I think the, the queer kids that won't know any different from now, I think they're going to be the true beneficiaries of, of the change, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does absolutely make yeah. sense. Like you know that I mean, of course there were you know gay relationships that you know stayed together for a long time then, but the fact that you could never you knew you would probably have to live a lie. You know, I mean, growing up in the country, there was always a couple of uh, you know older ladies who you know were just best friends who lived together who were clearly in a relationship yes. together, but were not. Of course, you were not allowed to say that they were in a relationship yeah. together. Yep, even that. You know, of it's course. different to being able to. Oh, yes. And we've all got like, your parents have got that uncle mm. that, you know, never married and, you know, died single when he was 90. Like there's always yeah. so many of those kind of stories out there where you just got to connect the dots when they're mm. telling you the story. But the flip side, which is another thing I struggled with, uh, through the debate, um, this might seem complicated here, but the other thing I struggled with a little bit is it isn't everybody wants to get married and right. a lot of people don't want that and they feel it's almost a kick in the face to some queer culture that we have and that we should embrace, whether that be what people might find crazy that, you know, dressed in leather at the Mardi Gras gets complaints every year, just as a perfect example. We are allowed to also be that as well. And I feel that during the debate that got lost a little bit as well. But there's a lot of people, not a lot, but there's some people in my life that couldn't think of anything worse than getting married or couldn't think of anything worse than signing up to an institution that did everything they could for hundreds of years to make us feel like shit and go out of their way to make our life hell, why would you want to sign up to that? So there's two ways to it, but what I fought for was the choice. The choice? Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. It's not it going to be compulsory for no. gay people to get married. No. It'd be pretty funny if it was. Yeah. I mean, they, we, <laughs> there we swung. <laughs> there was a loophole. There like, was an asterisk on yeah, the boat that sorry, no one uh, knew. Compulsory. <laughs> um, if you want to be gay, you have yeah. to be married. And the day they announced it was, I will never forget that. I don't know where you guys were. It was an out of body experience. I felt like I was on a Black Mirror episode, some weird sci-fi movie set in the future where government and people voted on rights of others. There was a few thousand of us at the state library in Melbourne. And I was looking around going, what if it's no, what the hell is going to happen today or right now? If that guy stands up in a minute and says it was no, like what the hell would have happened that day? What would have the thousands of us, there was families around, there was parents there to support every, like just so many people there that had fought it, fought the fight. I just can't even fathom what would have happened if that was a no vote. I, rem day. I remember it distinctly. And it's so, I mean, because uh, I remember the night before going to bed and Amy and I had the conversation the night before. She's, she's really interested in political issues. It's not, it's not what she's, uh, mm. you know, interested in. Um, but this was clearly, you know, I mean, she has so many, you know, uh, queer friends and like, but also she's just a human being who just, you know, thinks that people should be able to, you know, everybody should have access to the same things. And I remember both of us the night before had a conversation, but before bed about what if it's no, 
Mm. And then neither of us slept well the night before mm. because we were like, if this is no, this is going to say something about our country that I'm not sure that mm. I can, I just don't know. I was like, and this wasn't something that was going to affect me in a practical sense at all. But it would it was going to affect me in such a well, of course it would have. I think, cultural yeah I think and, everyone felt that I think anyone with remotely half a brain felt that yeah. on that day waking up that morning going holy just shit like, please <laughs> you know and that's please. also why I hope if anyone had trouble understanding why we want to throw our TV out the window anytime someone like Malcolm Turnbull pops up and says that he's we should be thankful mm. for that or it was a highlight of his government that's when we just want to throw our phones into the ocean because we got it in spite of you. We didn't get it because of you, if that makes sense to people listening. Like the it, fact that we had to fight for that was kind of just this final kick that wasn't needed. Well, it's, it's that perspective too that you mentioned before, which is that going from it's okay for you to be who you are like, you know, we've mm. allowed you to mm. have equal rights to us, yep. but that next step, which is that not only is it okay to be gay, but that being gay should be something that you can, you know, think is wonderful. Mm. <laughs> like not, you know, not like it's okay. We now accept you. Of course. But that we can celebrate you, yes. that we should celebrate you for being who you are. Yeah. And, and you know, what you want to do. Yeah, if exactly. If you want to lock in your hot boyfriend for life, then you should be able to do right. it. You know, if you want half his money, let's put this <laughs> down. Let's sign this shit in. Uh, yeah. So, you know, and that was uh, the, the fun part about that was, again, that thing again about making jokes about that guy that said to me the thing in the street. This is why I have fallen in love with comedy even more in the last few years. I don't know how you're going doing it for this many years, but I'm loving it more and more the longer I do it. So every year I'm loving it even more. The jokes about that survey were so good and so biting and fun. And uh, a lot of us gay comics had killer shows that year just because we were so angry and there were some really good bits that came out of it. It was like a protest back and that was a saving grace for me through that whole period was comedy, writing about it, making jokes about it, you know, going on radio shows, chatting about it, you know, taking the piss. Um, that was a really, if there was to get any sort of silver lining out of it, I fell in love with comedy a lot through that period. Yeah. Uh, when you sit down to write a show now, like something like Chatty Cathy, is that mm -hmm. the name of your new show? <laughs> that's the name of someone's show that they don't know what the show is about, Will. Yeah. No, that's it. Well, <laughs> hey, you've come to the right place. I know. Hey, What's what? the name of your show? Mm. Oh, the one I'm going to be doing in eight months. Um, that, that's <laughs> Chatty <you>. Cathy. Whack, <laughs> whack your name in the title and just come up with Mate, a title. Nath Valvo doesn't fit mm. in no words, Will. Uh, Valvo, Nath. No, don't bother. Nath? I've tried. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's you're right. It's... <laughs> Impossible. It's not. A stupid ethnic Italian father. What if, what if it's, uh, <laughs> what if it's you leaning on a microphone stand and it's Velvo lean, you know what I mean? Is this the end of the podcast? <laughs> Is this where I walk out? <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, that works. Having said that, you watch in 10 years and I'm truly out of show titles. That'll be the name of my show. That'll be a 10 year callback to this one joke. Um, when you go to write a show like Chatty Cathy, where does it start? What's your process? I'm very interested in your, uh, just a crazy person process. on the phone notes. So if you were to grab my, if someone, if a stranger was to find my phone on a, on a tram and look through my notes, they would think, what on earth is this person on about? So just odd 
thoughts, ideas I'll get during the day. I just chuck them in my phone every couple of weeks, load that up to my computer, see what we've got, give it a bit more, see where we're going there, add meat, try and get a bit out of it. I don't, I'm not one of these cool comics that can walk on stage with a drink and see where we go and see if this ends up being something. And so many comics are so good at that. I am not, I'm not saying a word on stage until I know I have an out. So the out might become funnier the more I do it, or I might change the out, but I'm never standing on stage without having thought about the bit as a beginning, middle and end. Okay. I, I write very heavily. Yeah. You're one of those people who goes into a restaurant and knows where the exits are. <laughs> yeah, I know? mean, I've Googled the restaurant menu. I know what I'm getting. <laughs> Mate, I'm all across. I'm I'm across it. Yes, I um, yeah. So there's definitely bits where I'll go off on a tangent. Maybe sometimes something funny happened in the audience, or whatever. If if it's at rooms and you're starting to do new, I I don't jump up and just see where it goes. I'm pretty. I've written it pretty heavy. How do you write? Like when you say notes on your phone, you so type. I, I type it on my lap. I don't say it verbatim, mm. but I type it out because I feel typing for me is like meditating. Once I start typing something opens up a little bit and I just keep going and I start vomiting it all out a little bit more if I was just thinking about it or saying it. Something about the slow typing helps me find more jokes, I think. So I'm all about it. Do you also edit on the on the computer? When you say typing, I assume you mean on a computer, not yes. on a typewriter. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I have a feather in my hat. Yeah, exactly. You uh, rip the page out of the typewriter <laughs> yeah, and you I say, this down. is comedy. <laughs> Sorry. Laugh, Ubu, laugh. Yes, yes, laptop. Yeah. yeah, on the yeah. lappy. Yeah. So do you also edit? Do you ever make it physical before you edit it? On, but do you ed- Or do you edit it on... What I'm asking is... Yes. Because I'll, I'll often... I use a whole bunch of different techniques, but right. if I've written something on screen, yep. I often then like to print it out. I'll print it physically. Out. I'll have a look. Edit it, oh yeah, yeah. But the thing is, if I've written to the computer, yeah, if I've written like two paragraphs on a bit, once I get on stage, that very quickly becomes two sentences or three sentences. Right. You automatically get rid of the fat once okay. you start talking it yeah. on stage. But I've definitely thought it through before I get up there. I wish I was a comic that could. I feel that, for example. Uh, your show where you're not scripting it and you're seeing how you go and you're doing crowd work and all that kind of stuff will be excellent and will be funny. And every show will be kind of special and cool that you were there on the night as an audience member. But do you agree that you can only do that because of the respect that you've earned from that audience over 80 or however many years it is that you've been doing stand up? (laughs) Like there's a, there's a respect that you've absolutely earned year yeah, after year. I'm after doing year this after for year. my 80th anniversary of comedy. <laughs> Do you so. know what I mean? And yeah. so I feel that's great. I just feel where I'm at and maybe people around kind of my number of years, maybe not that stuff yet. Maybe still try your best to make sure it's a really thought out good show. I agree. And, but also I, my improvisation can happen within pre-existing like joke structures yep. because I've done so many shows and yep. I've like written so many different routines that you kind of think a bit in the language yes. of it. So yep. it's not like you're going out with a completely blank slate because you have all these, you know, ways of talking hmm. yep. that even though the content like will be original, yeah, you have a rhythm. Yeah. You understand, you know, like, oh, this is funny up until this point, but now yeah. I can sense from the audience it's time for me to move on to the next idea or yeah. th- I can hear from the way the audience is leaning into this that yeah. there's more to this, but I haven't just got, got to the bit yet or yeah. this is just a one-liner or this is a story or this is a yeah. – I mean, you know those things instinctively already. Of course, but I still think that the audience are walking into that show under an, an agreement of respect for what 
you have done. Yes, but also much, they're do, walking into the show also a little bit like watching um, motor car racing where they want to see it go real fast, yeah. but they also wouldn't <laughs> mind if it smashes oh, into the fence. My dad used to drag me yeah. along to car racing all the time. I was so annoyed when there was no crash. I'm like, <laughs> why am I here? Right. I don't want to, I don't want a death. I don't yeah. want injury, Will, no. but I want to read a review that you bombed. I'm yeah. kidding. I don't No, know but <laughs> people won't want the whole show to bomb. Of but if not. there's not a moment in the show yes. where it doesn't potentially feel like it could bomb, <laughs> yeah. I feel like they'll they'll feel a little bit ripped off. Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. So <laughs> you put together your show. You you um you tour it now. You're doing amazing work. You have a perspective. You have a look at a joke. You can approach a joke, and I don't know whether it's because I think part of it probably is because you didn't spend all that time in in the rooms. Because as you said, watching other comedians can often influence your work in ways that you don't even understand. But also mm. that group think of the rooms, mm. you know, you all, what you notice through the scene at different times is if you drop in from year to year, you're suddenly like, oh, like eight people have got a joke about the infinite number of monkeys. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There are just themes that start to <laughs> sure. become, yes. you know, themes across. Yeah. There's even rooms I know, I've noticed I swear at. So there's rooms I've noticed that when I jump up, but I swear and everything's F this and fuck that and, and C by and all this stuff. It's like, that's, that's not happening in my shows at all. You adapt to the room and it is fun. Um, if but, you're there just for have a bit of fun. But if you're there but, all the time, yeah. you can adapt your style to everybody else's style and there can be a homogeny of ideas almost. Yes. Whereas I think maybe some of that time you weren't there enabled you to develop your own way of approaching a joke or looking at it. And I think that's one of the things I'm most impressed by because it's not even just the material itself, but it's how you've approached that material or how you've put together that routine. Mm. Um, so anyway, we've talked about comedy for like an hour. Sorry, everyone. Uh, which, yes, I love. So do I And I, I could do for another two hours. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, eventually people like me to yeah. not talk about Do you think comedy. when people listen to the podcast, they skip ads and when people talk about comedy? Well, on this podcast, if they skip when people talk about comedy, they're skipping a lot of the podcast. Make you, make better decisions okay. about your own life, people. Listen to conversations. Yeah. Richard Feiler rarely just gets obsessed about what shoes people wear on stage. Well, to his detriment. Uh, I, there's a general uh, principle to this uh, podcast yes. where I ask people if they have a philosophy. And, mm -hmm. uh, do you have one? Is there a philosophy to life or love or work or um, anything that you could share with us? So I, I told you before we turned the microphones on that I got, I woke up this morning a little bit nervous because I was like, oh, you're going to ask the question, the entire point of this podcast. And I am jealous of people. I've always had this weird jealousy of people that have faith and jealous of people that do have quite strict philosophies or things written in their house or things tattooed on their arm that they tell themselves every day. I wish I had that. I'm just so flimsy every day. It depends on what day you ask me, what headspace I'm in, how good I'm feeling about stuff on how I go about things. I am very jealous of people that I'm just very pragmatic and just do what I have to do for that day or for that uh, situation or that job or that person. Or um, I think the, I just feel if you don't go out of your way to make someone else feel shit, you're doing a pretty good job. You know, those people that talk to you about a house party that you weren't invited to, don't be one of those people kind of thing. And I just feel if you just don't make someone else feel shit and just do little things to maybe make sure that person doesn't feel like shit, then we'll all be a little bit better. How's that? No, I like that. I think yeah. that's a good, that's a good principle. It's yeah. a good guiding principle. I relate very much to the idea of, 
um, you know, it changing day to day. Depends yes. when you ask me. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Right? And yeah. often within a day, ask oh, me in the morning absolutely. versus ask me in the afternoon. Yes. If I'd asked you that question in an hour, you know, even before we started talking about comedy, it could be a different response or a different energy to me asking you now. I think yes. it's a very realistic yep. way to answer that yeah. question. I also feel, this sounds, I don't want to tap into some sort of weird like macho thing here. I also feel when I've gone through some shit and the coming out stuff and people close to me dying or whatever it is that we've all gone through, like some of the, the shitty things I've gone through, I've just gotten through it without doing too much, if that makes sense. And again, just being quite pragmatic about what to do that day. Just get through it. Just kind of get through that day or go and chat to that person. Or, But I will say this. But that's, um, a, that's a little, this, this too will pass. You know, as in like. Yeah, maybe if you put in, yeah, yeah in a nice pillow. Yeah, probably, yeah. to be honest. I would also say, um, I, th I think everyone should see a therapist at least a couple of times. <laughs> I feel that that's really important. And I have seen uh, one probably once or twice uh, a year for 10 years. And even just that, it was a bit more sometimes that it had to, she, a few times she was like, let's crank this up to maybe a couple, every couple of months. Uh, I feel that's and really important. And was that to do with, uh, every, kind of you everything. needed it more or was it that to do with the fact that she wanted to go on holiday? <laughs> <laughs> she was, uh, you know what, here's an interesting tidbit about my therapist. How's this for competitive comic? Yeah. One day she said, she confessed to me that she sees a bunch mm. of comics. And, yes. and she, I, She's a, a therapist who um, uh, has been recommended by a bunch of comics. Absolutely. I think she's very good at what she does. She's very good at what she does. And comedians, I think, uh, A, need to go to therapy, but yes. B, <laughs> need to have a therapist who understands what a comedian is yes. as opposed to, because there is something about being a comedian, being probably in one of those jobs where you spend a lot of your time examining life, examining yes. what is normal, everything. what is not normal, yes. uh, you know, thinking about your own life. Yep. Like sometimes for other people, if you're busy working all day to put, you know, I mean, you had a, uh, look, I, you might not remember this joke. Um, and, uh, I, I think that we could say it. And if you don't, mm -hmm. if you feel uncomfortable saying it, um, uh, Anyway, we did, Tom Bellard, the beautiful Tom Bellard, mm -hmm. uh, had his birthday party recently. Yeah. And one of the things he wanted to do was a, a roast of him. Idiot. And he invited his friends to <laughs> you know, comedically roast him. Yeah. But you had a joke about his television show tonightly. Do you remember the joke that you made? Oh, give, give it to me, Will. I'll give you the gist. I like the gist, the gist of it was like, um, you know, that you were shocked uh, that uh, Tonightly had been cancelled because um, who could, you know, who could believe that the average working person after, you know, working nine to five to put some food on their plate for their, you know, family and, you know, whatever, didn't want to come home to half an hour of being lectured to. Yeah. It's a, like, it's a great joke, <laughs> yeah. right? But at the same time, it, uh, it had an insight into it, which was that some people are just going to their work and they have to concentrate on that. And they don't have, I think as comedians... We often make the mistake of judging people for not thinking about things as much as we do. Yes. And not realizing that the capacity to, I mean, I get to, like, I've made this podcast up so that I can spend like, you know, two hours a week talking to really intelligent, interesting people about what they think life's about. Yeah. Like other people don't have that luxury. And that's true. sometimes what therapy is for them. That's true. Whereas a comedian's going to therapy already doing a lot of, Self, would you therapy. say it's almost a little bit privileged? It's incredibly privileged, yeah, to have the time to go to therapy. 
because I've been trying to work on a bit at the moment. It's very half fast. I'm not there yet. And I'm not testing a bit. I just meant I'm trying to find the funny in. I feel that a lot of the time spirituality is something you find once you have enough money. Mm. And I find a lot of that kind of corner of some of the stuff, not all of it, but some of the stuff can be quite privileged. What, to, what the meaning of life is, you know, is a privileged conversation because most people don't have time to think about what the meaning of life yes. is because they're too busy fucking sure. working and living but, their life. Yeah, it is true. But the reason I'm a bit pro therapist is because I feel even if you're going through something bad, even if you need to vent or if you've had a shit thing happen with a mate or some stuff's going on, even if you talk to your friends that you're close with, you're still a little bit putting on a show. You're still keeping up appearances a little bit. You're still putting a little thing on it that you do when you talk to everyone every day. And I feel that when you go to a therapist, that drops. You truly, and you're paying for it. So you really well and truly can vent properly. And if you sound like an idiot, you sound like an idiot. If you come across as jealous or petty, or you just need to be able to find a space where you can actually go and do that to someone that you know won't affect you in your life. It's not your mom. It's not your cousin. It's not your brother. It's not your mate. It's a professional that you can just vent to. Do That's you why I'm feel all for it. That there are, there are, are you able to be a hundred percent honest with your therapist or are there still things that but again, through even, yeah. ego, even you ego to yourself? 100%. And, and so that's what I'm saying. If that's what it's even there with the ego with her, imagine what, how much of it's there. If it's someone in your life, like if it's someone that you're close to, imagine how much of your ego gets in the way of you actually saying what your problem is or what you're really angry about, you know, but it's still better. I still feel lighter for it when I leave. So it does something the next day I feel better. It's like a massage. It can hurt a little bit when you're in there the next day feels a bit better. So I really like it. There's Uh, some, there's some stuff that she's made me do in the past that I was like, Oh boy, I can't do this. Oh, like oh, exercises man. and stuff. Oh you mean? man, like holding a mirror up and looking in the mirror and not looking away and all this. I was like, oh man, I don't, I can't, <laughs> I can't. The, co- the comedic forces were, were strong that day. Oh, uh, if, if somebody made me try to look <laughs> in a mirror, I've done 11 years of growing. I've never seen a full episode. Yeah. <laughs> like, but then thinking about it later, I was like, I spend a lot of the time looking at the mirror, uh, but that's just to check hair. You know, it's not to talk about myself. Anyway, do you have good hair by the way, Will? Oh, thank you. Nathan. I've always thought that. On the way in, I thought, I'll ask Will about his hair. I'll see if he's across that. <laughs> this is meant to be a deep podcast about philosophy and coping mechanisms. Nah, good hair, man. Uh, is that from you. your dad or your mum's side? It's uh, an interesting question. My, my mum's dad was bald, mm. but I believe it was war-related. Oh. He lost all his hair during the war in, in right. some sort of, okay. I don't know if it was a chemical thing yeah. or like a stress thing or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. it was, but literally went kind of bald overnight or, you know, mm. yeah, that equivalent of overnight during the war. So I don't actually know what the family side right. is there. My dad is balding, but not bald. Uh, my brother, though, went bald in his mid thirties, like mm. all baldish. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So I'm having my hair. I get my hair cut every two weeks because mm-hmm. it grows so quickly, right. and it's uh, it, it's it's thick. Yeah, but I can't, can't really grow hair on my face. Like what you're seeing right now is about the maximum of what. That's enough. Yeah. Never had a beard. Well, as I'll speak on behalf of the gays and the girls here, shave, it hurts. Okay. Yeah. No. Shaving really hurts. That that feedback has been delivered. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just, just doubling down, men. Bloody shave. How hard is it? Uh, I've started using it because I've grown out my gray. No, that's a big thing for me because I was, um, for years. Fighting the I, gray? Well, no, no, 
because a bit of shoe polish before a gruen taping. I was fighting the um, I was fighting the the boring brown. So I've always had mousy brown hair. So no one has ever really seen my natural hair color because I've mm-hmm. been dyeing my hair since I was fifteen years old. Yeah. And yeah, Glasshouse days different colors every week. Like mm. I was in fucking Green Day or something. But like I remember I. I remember peroxide wheel yeah, very I, strongly. There was e- every <laughs> combination of what there was, I had a crack at it. All, yeah. I, all I didn't want was boring brown. But mm. then as I got older, it just kind of went to like jet black and then that's what it was. Mm. So I had no idea what was going to be under there. Like <laughs> I knew that you could tell from the roots that. You had a gender reveal party for your own hair. Yeah. And I could, I could tell from the roots it wasn't going to be yeah. black because <laughs> it was never black. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but I didn't know how gray it was going to be. And it took six months to grow out. Yeah. So I had that floating uh, and hairline. And keep the for gray for your new show with the no script because it just adds a bit of class to it. Yeah. So, or you know, listen to the man mm, with the gray hair. Or it'll be like, oh, God, he's <laughs> let himself go. <laughs> doesn't dye his hair anymore. Doesn't write, doesn't jokes. write a show. <laughs> Oh God, he's out. <laughs> Grandpa's lost it. It's just an old grey-haired man yelling at people on the street now. Um, I uh, wanted to ask you about um, uh, what is it that makes makes you feel low? Without wanting to go into what mm-hmm. you're talking to your therapist about, but when you are feeling like you are trouble, when you are yes. feeling like uh, you, what, what are the things that are going to be hmm. flags? I have a real soft spot for culture of comparison. I'm very bad at that. You know, I question stuff when I compare it to other people. So Do you mean like career-wise and every, stuff? Everything-wise. I feel that uh, because I've always, I doubt things. Who doesn't? Who doesn't doubt stuff, doubt decisions, doubt everything? And so if I'm having a bad day. Well, the psycho, uh, psychopaths. Yeah, okay. Psychopaths, though. Sociopaths. Yeah. Sociopaths, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. if I'm having a pretty shitty day about something, I don't know, I... I overthink everything. And it's this thing that I'm sure a million comics have said on this podcast before. My overthinking makes me good at comedy, but bad at life sometimes. And I have a tendency to overthink my way out of anything. Yeah. Anything good. Yeah. Give me a minute and I'll deconstruct that for you. And that's kind of awful, isn't it? But uh, it takes a bit of practice to, you know. But that is your mindset. That's what I mean about knocking off at five o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Sometimes as a comedian, like it is very hard to, and I notice myself doing it. Somebody will be talking to you or maybe not even talking to you, just doing something with somebody. Mm. And you suddenly realize they could have been talking to you because in your head, you've been like, you know, working on something or your brain's just like picking something apart or whatever it is. Absolutely. I think that's everyone, but everyone does that. That's not just a comic thing. I know, but sometimes you, I think you go into dissection mode, oh, which absolutely. is like, yeah, I'm going to look 100%. at this. I can't look at this flower. I've got to look at this. I've got to pick this flower. I've got to yeah. dry the flower. I've got to hang the flower upside yeah. down. I've got to see how many petals it is. I've got yeah. to see what happens if I pull one off. I've got to like, you know, am I, what does the flower smell like? like I think that's an know. ADHD issue, what's, Will, but what's, that's. What's funny about the flower? Yeah. Is this a funny flower? <laughs> like, what's the funniest flower? Now yeah. in my head, I'm like, what is the funniest flower? Is it the Venus flytrap? <laughs> is the Venus flytrap the funniest? I couldn't name more than three flowers, so I can't even help you with this bit. But uh, yeah, so I suppose it's a bit of, uh, yeah, that the comparison stuff, the doubting the stuff, the overthinking, just the overthinking, I think. When you're feeling at your best, what's happening? Stuff's good, isn't it? I get up, have a good breakfast, play with my dog. Got a dog last year. That's a big step for Cody and I. You know, we've got our little house in Brunswick. We rent, but it's an awesome house. We're really good. We're the best we've ever been. So that's really nice. We get to muck around. I've got a huge family that, 
are there whenever I want for food, basically. <laughs> uh, if I ever want to call them or hang with my nephews, I can do that. If I like my show, I really loved my show this year. Like I worked really hard on it, but come like mid Adelaide, I just promised myself, I was like, mate, you get to just, just don't overthink it tonight. You get to do it. And again, tomorrow night and you get to do this show that you like. So I just try and remind myself that, uh, if 20 year old me met 36 year old me and 36 year old me said to 20 year old me, Hey, you pay your bills with comedy and it's all good. And you live in the, you rent in the suburb that you like, and you got a really hot boyfriend, <laughs> you know? Uh, I think the main thing is that, yeah, you have a, like an actual stable career doing what you wanted to do when you were 12. It's pretty good. That's pretty great. Don't you think? Yeah. 20 year old me would be pretty happy. I, I mean, I did have the Aria nomination at 20. We'll stop mentioning it, but I'd still, I would have been pretty happy with that. And so I got to check myself on that sometimes. Yeah, yeah, but now your best show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival nominated, so you know, <laughs> didn't like, win. Yeah, well, it's okay. didn't, didn't win the Aria either. It's just so nice, to, going be, on? No, nice I'm to be nominated. I've got, hey, nice to be included. I've isn't never it? won it either. Yeah. Been nominated, but I've not, not won it. <laughs> but yeah, so I suppose it's that you just got to check yourself. That's not just a, a comic thing. I think that's almost everyone. Right. So comparison can be so horrible oh, because it's all, it's very toxic. But because also you don't know. You have no sense of the rest of somebody else's life. Yeah, of you're taking one ideal part of their life, their relationship, their yes. career success, their whatever, yeah. their car, yeah. and not taking into account anything else hmm. about like their life that has has given them that one thing. Hmm. But when you compare yourself to others, is it what is the topic more more often than not? Um, well, is it, I, is it career or is it's it other career? Things? Sometimes it's I. I've been fighting for a couple of years this, uh, I've got this little teenage rebel somewhere in me still that's kind of like anti-establishment, like, you know, don't conform, ugly, stupid words like that, like don't buy a house, why do you want a mortgage, don't get married, why do you want to do, why do you want to get a dog, everyone has a dog. Just this stupid little anarchist voice that I had when I was a teenager, when I thought I was going to be different and into, I was going to be the individual, unlike everyone else that I went to school with, I'll be the different one. I'm in this constant battle between that and what I want, mm. which is a dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to be at home and I want to cook food and watch TV with my hot partner. <laughs> like I'm in this constant battle. For some reason, at some point in my life, I told myself that being regular yeah. or doing what everyone else does is uh, boring and not cool and you'll be unhappy about it. I'm finding the evidence to be quite different, Will. Well, it, because it's almost sometimes harder to have an honest conversation with yourself about what it is that you really want and yeah. like and accept yes. that. And then... Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's good How point. does Cody uh, feel about you talking about him in your act and Oh, he's life? fine. Yeah, yeah, he's all good. I suppose the when you do stand up about your family or stand up uh, about anyone in your life, it becomes a cartoon caricature of that person. So even though he does do triathlons and he's super fit and very different to me and works in medical research and he's up at four and he has a bedtime and he has a diary and his day is planned to the minute. Absolute wanker, Will. <laughs> uh, you know, that's all true, but the cartoon version I give of him on stage is a bit, you know, it's a bit of showbiz involved there and he's totally on board all that stuff. I wouldn't, I don't think I could be with someone that doesn't laugh at themselves more than anything first. So he laughs a lot. Good, uh, sen good sense of humor. Has your, um, because you do talk about life mm. and, you know, people in and around your life. Yep. Has there ever been anyone who hasn't been comfortable with uh, it? Yeah, I've had, yep. People in my family have said, hey, 
they forward. I didn't think of they forward think about things that have happened when we were kids. Like my oh. siblings have said to me, hey. ruled out some topics. Yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent. My sister said to me once, "You better not ever tell the story of." Mm-mm-mm. I was yeah. like, I actually probably would have. Yeah. So lucky that yeah. you said that. Well done. Yeah. So they've definitely there's there's been moments where that has happened, but also we're not dumb. We kind of know what you can and can't talk about on stage. I feel. I don't think I'd ever get it wrong. No. It, uh, look, I, I, can't, I imagine that you wouldn't, and I imagine that your family trusted you, they wouldn't. But I, I, I tread carefully around yeah. that stuff. But, you know, my argument to my mum sometimes when she was like, you know, did you really have to tell that bit? I'm always like, you said it. Yeah. Right. That's on you. You said it. <laughs> you said it, mate. Yeah. yeah. I was just relaying a fact <laughs> that you said that sentence. My, mine mostly <laughs> is along the lines of, look, I haven't asked you for money since I started doing comedy. <laughs> so... Well, I wish I could say the same, Will. <laughs> wish I could say the same. Dog food is very expensive. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever crossed the line. I think the person that cops it the absolute most is me. The more embarrassed I am about something, that's my gut saying, definitely talk about it. Um, that'll be funnier and more memorable if you're embarrassed by it. So, Have, have you yes. made jokes that you regret? Yes. Oh, who hasn't? Yeah, well, absolutely. I imagine everybody oh, yeah. has. But... I think my biggest... Well, again, oh. sociopaths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think, oh man, imagine not growing every year. Imagine not getting better and better at what you do. I think the longer you do comedy, you choose your targets better. You learn to punch up better. Mm. Um, Don't you think that Australia's lost the larrikin and political correctness <laughs> has gone mad, though, Nath? <laughs> you know, I feel you just get better at it. I feel that uh, you can joke about anything if you work hard enough on the joke. I, I have an issue with lazy comedy. Um, and I think if you see good comics, almost anything can be joked about if it's done right. I, with uh, the right amount of thought. Absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the idea that there is any topic, because uh, you'll hear this argument. Mm. Yeah, you know, back across the, the idea that there's any topic that is off off limits no, is absolutely yeah, that's bullshit. Bullshit. Yeah, but there are ways of talking about mm-hmm. things that are deservedly off limits now. And I don't get this idea of you know being. Yes, I understand it's embarrassing that a joke I made ten years ago is not a joke that I would in any way make today. And I would mm. be embarrassed by people going, if people were like, Hey, you know, that joke you made about fat kids, you thought that was about you being a fat kid, but really it came across like you were making fun of fat kids. Yeah. And I'd be like, yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right. Yeah. And hopefully knowing what I know today and where I am today and mm. whatever, I would either reframe that joke in a way that made it very clear that I was kind of talking about me or I would ha- like kind of be able to understand that regardless about whether this was a joke about me, you know, whatever. Yeah. Just to use an actual example from my comedy career about a joke yeah. that I, yeah, 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 like a joke that people loved and a joke that used to kill for me and a joke that if I had my time over, I would absolutely never do now, yeah. you know? And I don't think that's a bad thing, No, but there seems to be this kind of debate at the moment of like, you know, no, it's cool. It like, language changes and yeah. jokes change and, and you get better and you get and you better get told. Right. Um, oh, absolutely. Like I think when I first started, uh, cause girls and the girls in my life are such a huge part of my life and my big crew of friends and girls and in high school, obviously friends with all the girls got, you know, two sisters and a lot of aunties and you know, my mum and I are very close, very female esque energy in my world. Yeah. But when I first started, I didn't know how to go about that the right way. And so 
I, was, I think I was quite misogynist with a couple of my jokes early on, really early on about like fag hags and, you know, the women obsessed with the gays. That, that kind of sucks. Would never do that ever again. So I think the, that area of my stand-ups improved a lot, knowing how to talk in the funny, truthful way about the girls in my life and the relationships we have. That's become a lot funnier and a lot better, I think, for sure. Uh, when you're at your best on stage, what is it? High kicking. <laughs> If I'm doing a high kick, I'm happy. Yeah. Uh, if I'm slowed down and I'm breathing, I'm having a good time. Yeah. So, we, we, so if you're fast, you're nervous. Uh, is that I, what it is? Because you are I, fast I, I can anyway. Go fast, but I mean, I can still go fast, but I'm breathing and I'm, I'm, com I'm very comfortable and I know where I'm going. But sometimes I'll walk out, uh, I'll forget to breathe at the wrong point. Uh, something at the top doesn't go as well as it did last night. So the doubt kicks in and then you feel that you just don't have them for the rest of the hour and uh, you don't like it. And you feel like you're going through the motions and you just want to get off. That happens sometimes, I feel. <laughs> but, you know, when you're breathing and, uh, yeah, for me it's just breath. If I'm actually not out of breath and I haven't gone red, I'm having a good time. If uh, uh, I've got a comedy magic wand. Imagine I have a comedy magic wand and I can come down and I can grant. I think Louis C.K. said that once, Will. <laughs> yeah. Would you like to see my, I oh, know, I'm asking for permission. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> no, I would have just whipped out my comedy magic wand and started uh, <laughs> casting spells and <laughs> you would have felt trapped in the room. So um, I have a comedy magic wand and I can grant you any comedy wish that you would like. Mm -hmm. What What would you like? Uh, I would like, uh, I would like. A com I would like confirmation and have it locked in that this will uh, pay my bills for the rest of my life. And if I had that taken away and that pressure, I think I would be uh, a lot happier. I am happy, but even I'd be a lot more happy about my stand-up. When stand-up started to pay my bills and my comedy career affected where I lived and what I can afford to do, it gets a little bit murky when all the business side of it kicks in. And because for so long it wasn't that when I first left high school and did shambles and all that, the ARIA nomination. <laughs> when all that stuff happened, money was like, we had to pay for our own everything and it was all just like fun. So I feel that the times where I hate this job and the times I get stressed and annoyed is when it's uh, life and admin meet the comedy. I really don't like that area. And if I was, if I was, if your wand could say, you're going to be able to afford to eat, feed your dog, go on a holiday once in a while, I'd be very happy. Uh, outside comedy. Can I have some money, Will? That is <laughs> what I'm building to. Uh, go and see Neath's show. That's the best way to oh, give yeah, him money. You. Yeah, sure. You're doing a national tour. People yes. can actually just come along and literally give you money and yes. then they can watch you. It is a weird life that, you know, being able to afford rent solely depends on strangers enjoying me or not. That's a weird life to live. Oh, it, Isn't it? It, it, it? it is. Yes. I mean, I, I've been incredibly lucky that I've been a full-time professional stand-up comedian from age 22 or 23, mm. uh, which means that for the last 20, you know, two, three years of my life, like the, the reason that I've been able to do what I do is because of the support of complete strangers. It's very weird. You know? Like in the first year of doing my stand-up show, a whole bunch of relatives and friends came mm. and none of them would come back. <laughs> <laughs> from then on, it has pretty much been the kindness of strangers that has meant absolutely. Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. You're, you're making an agreement with people, and none of the things that I could do, I could do without the support of those complete strangers. Going, yeah. I, I enjoy the idea of. I mean, 
Nate, I was looking at like I got through sent through the report for my ticket sales for Comedy Festival the other day, and normally I just don't look because mm. it's nothing I can. It's not like I can suddenly do something else that'll make people you know, sell mm. more tickets. Like you just do what you do, and as many people come as they come. But this year, because I'm doing half a season of my old show, Will Eagle, mm. and I'm doing half a season of the improv shows, I wanted to know, was one selling better than the other? Do you know what I mean? Like with the Why improv did you shows, want to know that? Well, just out of curiosity right. more than anything. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Was fair like, enough. That's see, you, see, my chest then is anxiety-inducing. I just... wanted to know if like people <laughs> were – because one's a repeat show, so I've already yeah. done a whole season of Melbourne with her. Yeah. So there could be reasons people wouldn't come to that. Maybe everybody who wanted to see the show originally yeah. already came and saw the show. Maybe it won't sell very many tickets, right? <laughs> or the other one is like, well, maybe people only want to come and see me do a show when it's a written show. Maybe they don't want to take a risk on this improv show, right? So anyway, they're selling about exactly the same, it turns out. So I can draw no conclusions. It's the grey hair. That's the conclusion I've come to. They trust a man with grey hair. But there was a part of me that really, because I'm not nervous about the improv shows. Mm. I will be nervous about them. An hour before? Yeah. Mm. On the day, absolutely. I'll be nervous about them. Probably sometimes within that 70 minutes of doing the show, I'll be nervous about it. But I can't do anything about it up until that point. So mm. I, I'm not nervous about it till then, but I had one moment of real nerves because I saw how many complete strangers had invested a reasonable amount of their own money based on the idea that they think I can wing it out. <laughs> like, That's a babysitter. You know I mean? That's like, like parking, yeah. maybe a, a, a whole a bunch meal. of people. It's a whole night, Will. Yeah. Have on you have already committed yeah, 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 in yeah. December yeah. that in April <laughs> I'll be able to wing something that's yep. Yeah, I was there was a moment where I was like, geez, I hope I don't disappoint those people. Yeah, yeah, that's what we've signed up for. Um, outside comedy, yes, when you're at your best, mm. what, what does that look like? Sitting, uh, I get so excited when I have when I realize that I don't have to go anywhere for two weeks. It happened just last week. I, I'm always happy to go somewhere for a gig because it means we're working and I'm very happy about that. But, you know, to have a steady income as a stand-up, you have to go into a state a lot because that's, you have to go to the gigs and wherever, go wherever the gigs are. No one city can support you as a comic in this country. And so we're on flights a lot. And the other week I looked at my thing, I was like, that's it. I have no flight for like three weeks home. Good-ish weather coming up. I don't like going in the sun, but I like the option of knowing I won't go into the sun. Uh, so I'm happy when I'm out, when I'm not on, you know, smashing a show, you know, good food. What What is good food for you? What Do you cook? Are Cody you and cook? I both cook. We you both go out. Cook. Yeah, we both, we go out a lot. Is he on some, some sort of controlled diet no, though at home? the thing, Will, because he exercises he does so much. So much. He, he can eat whatever he wants. He's like wants. a pig. Yeah. Yeah. Eats a lot. Yeah, right. Uh, food's really big in my family. Grew up with awesome cooks and stuff. So we, everyone cooks a lot. Um, What's yeah, your signature dish? Or what, no, my okay, signature Tell me dish. two things. Okay. What's the best thing you cook? Uh, but secondly, <clears> what's your favorite thing to eat? Okay. My favorite thing to eat yeah. is. Death row uh, meal. Bowl of pasta, done right. It's bolognese pasta. Can't beat it. Yeah. What's wrong with that? No. Done right. No, you no. Know. Yep. No, my favorite pasta is, um, uh, I, I won't say it properly, but mm. cacio a pepe, which is just pepper pasta, like cheese right. and pepper pasta. Yum. It's like, you know, it's fancy mac cheese. Delish. But it's like, what else do you need? <laughs> yeah, what else do you need? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I do like, I do cook uh, Italian food when I can be bothered. 
Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, just eating, watching, and just hanging out. I just like turning off very much. I do like being at home, and my friends know that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like now I'm, I'm that friend that when I'm somewhere now, people go, oh, you're here. When your friends talk about you behind your back. <laughs> yeah, often. What, not what do they say, what would you hope that they would say? I would hope that they would say that he can be a little bit difficult and he won't come to something if he can't be bothered. And he definitely tells you that. He gets annoyed when people try and organize group presents and group nights out and splitting bills. But uh, anything that I want, he will do if I call and ask. I know that. But I'm very annoying. I don't like to go to things either. I just don't like going to things. At, at Tom Ballard's birthday party, <laughs> yeah. the amount of people who came up to me with a look of surprise on their face, and yeah. I was like, I know. I'm as surprised like, yeah. as anybody my that friends, I'm here. Yeah, my friends know I'm there, yeah. and I will love a good bitch, love a good goss sesh. Give me a call, vent, let's do it. But, you know, that big dinner that you're organizing next week, and you need numbers, and you need money, and that, that kind of does my head in a little bit. I'm not going to lie. If you could... Um, but then I want to be invited, Will. Yes. Don't not invite oh, me. Oh, no, you want to be invited so you have the option not to go. <laughs> Please oh, don't absolutely. not invite me. No, no, that's a whole different scenario. <laughs> the power's got to be in my court. Thank you. Um, uh, what do you think Cody would say to me if I asked him the question, what he likes the most about you? Um, I think Cody likes that he knows non-comic me. I think he likes that a lot. He knows switched off me. Um, I'm very patient. We're, we're, we're both very patient towards each other because we have to be, we wouldn't be together if we weren't because we have two jobs that couldn't be more different. If you tried on paper on paper, we don't make any sense. I haven't, I'm yet to meet a couple, uh, more opposite than Cody and I, he works in medical, as I said, medical research, very true. Like he's all about timetables. Um, and then there's me <laughs> just opposite to everything that you can think of. So I think we're in a way very patient knowing that our sense of humor is exactly the same. We muck around a lot when we're just us two. All of that is worth putting up with the triathlons. If you, could, <laughs> you know, if you could take a skill from anybody else in the world, it can be any skill. Um, what would it be? I'd really like to be good at a sport. Mm. I've always been very jealous. I can't do any sport. Very bad at sport. <laughs> very uncoordinated, Will. I get very jealous. And I know it's a very easy way out as a, you know, gay comic to be like, eh, sport, man, nah, you know, gross. And I, don't get me wrong, I do do that and will continue to. But I think it comes from a place of jealousy. I think I'm quite jealous of sporting culture um, that feeling of, cause my family's footy obsessed. I'm just not into it, but then seeing them when their teams win, I'm like, ah, oh, I get FOMO. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to jump on the bandwagon the day before the grand final. Uh, I think deep down, I would love to be good at sport. I'm not good at any sport, Will. And I have tried a few in my younger years. Are you good at a sport? I was You're really good at cricket, right? No, no football. Foot, uh, footy. Yeah. I was, I was, right. I was a pretty decent football yeah, player, but see? But only because I'm, I was the same height when I was like 12 years old. 
came so, out that way. Yeah. Poor mother. But yeah. But, no, but I did. Like I, yeah. I, I dominated junior sport because I was yeah. twice the size of everybody yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. When everybody else came, <laughs> became the same size as me, turns out I wasn't as good at yes. sport. And because I hate exercise and I don't yeah. exercise, which is bad. Uh, it's interesting I, because you have a good figure. It's not really. It's just thin. That's not good, is it? Yeah, it's fine. Oh, it's fine. Thin's fine. Sure. I, mean, I love clothes. I look very good clothes. Love the person you are, people. And I'm Switch certainly don't yeah, want to yeah. like. Because I hate exercise, I wish I was good at a sport mm. because people that are good at sport just do it and they don't yeah. think about it and they have fun and they're getting hot while they do it. Uh, I do wish I had that skill somewhere. Um, anyway. We're nearly done. Uh, but cool, I um, just got a couple of standards that I go okay. for it with. Uh, what do you think happens when we die? Oh, unfortunately, uh, I don't think much. Uh, I'm obsessed with death. Are you? When you say obsessed, what I do you mean? It. I think about it a lot. Yeah. So like day, day to day? Yep. I think about death every day. And how do you think about it? Uh, it's fear. It's definitely a place of fear of not being here. I think it comes from a place of FOMO, just the mm. ultimate FOMO of not being around, which is... Well, it is. Death is the uh, ultimate yeah, FOMO. Yeah, really? <laughs> I mean, that's, that sounds like a pillow. <laughs> gonna, hey, that's my merch for my show in 2020. Death is the ultimate FOMO. Uh, weirdly, and I uh, don't know if anyone else listening does this, I use death. This is so mm. weird. I use death as an anxiety tool, and it definitely helps. Uh, so if I'm about to walk on stage and I'm super nervous, because I still get really nervous sometimes for gigs, um, I remind myself of the infinite darkness that is death and how much this won't matter soon. And it helps. Is that weird? Does that make me a weird person? No, I think the idea of recognizing that death comes to us all can be very powerful. It's, it, it actually calms me down. Mm. And if you're stuck in a shitty little annoying situation with someone, remind yourself, uh, about the finality of death should most of the time calm your nerves a little bit. So I definitely kind of use it. I don't know if that's healthy or not. Maybe this is something to bring up next time I see my therapist. I think we are, I mean, I've, you know, a few people around me recently, you know, have lost their kind of battle with, you know, Mm. uh, like, and you know, there is, you know, it's very different mindset and people are thinking about these things in very different ways. But when I've been at my, darkest, you know, and times, I think most people have had at least some times in their life where they think the world would be a better place if they weren't involved in the world. There's always been that moment where I was like, well, if I'm going to end it, I can always, let's do something today. Cause what, how could it get worse? Mm. Right. And I can always do it tomorrow, you know? And then sometimes in that day, you, you of course then discover, of course, you know, Yes. Like, you know, there, yep. there, there almost is a power around it. Now, obviously not everybody thinks of the world like that, but yeah. we have a, such a hesitance to talk about death in general. Yeah. I think that we've, we yeah. build up all of these things around it and it can be a myriad of different yes. things. And I, I really this. want to just double down. I hope yes. people didn't read what I just said as in, I think that I will end my life. No. Oh, okay. God, I just wanted to make that clear. I just no, 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 no. I was more talking, I course. was probably contextualizing sure, 100%. that. Sure, 100%. I just want to double down on to that. To say that. Yeah. Yes, I Sorry. just meant. That was more the point I was trying to make. Yeah, yeah. at some point it will come. Yes, to and, us all. And uh, if, if you're aware that it's even coming, if you're 85 lying in a hospital bed somewhere, you're not going to be thinking about uh, that petty fight that you were having with your friend when you were 36 years old. I mean, you that. might be. 
mean, you never know. You've the got a lot of spare thinking time at that point. <laughs> and you're stuck in the fucking retirement yeah. home with so, them now. I do and they annoy the, the shit yeah. out of you every fucking day. Uh, but yeah, so I do, I think, I don't know if that's a healthy or not relationship with death, but I do think about it quite often. Does thinking about death define the way you live your life? I, I would say it definitely has an yes. effect. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Are there things that you yeah. thought or wished or hoped that you would do before you die that you still haven't done? Well, this is tapping into that thing we spoke about earlier about comparison. Whereas if you didn't, you asking that question now has me panicking, thinking, oh, fuck, what haven't I done? Whereas if you didn't ask that question, I would walk out here right now, being happy with my day, all good. Got the holiday coming up next week, Christmas time. It's a nice time to be alive. But now that question is the issue that I think a lot of comics have now, that question of what don't I have? What should I be doing? Is this enough? So I don't know the answer to that. Um, there's things I want to do with my job. Obviously there's career goals I have, but is that the same? I don't know. Good answer. I like that answer. Yeah. Um, I have a time machine. Mm -hmm. uh, I can take you back to any moment in your life Ooh. and you can either change it mm -hmm. or you can observe it. Oh man. What do you do? <laughs> Well, what a question. Do you know the answer This is to the that final question. Okay. This is the final question of the podcast. I yes. uh, Go and see Nate's show. He is, uh, honestly, I, I'll, I'll do all the plugs at the top. Like, oh, that's you nice. Know, proper as well. But Thanks. Go and see Nate's show, um, touring all around Australia. Are you going to go overseas? Uh, to be confirmed. Okay. I haven't made my mind possibly, up yet. Hopefully. Yeah, maybe. maybe. We'll see. Maybe. Maybe overseas. <laughs> anyway, you'll yeah. be able to go and, like, you guys know how to use the, the internet. internet. <laughs> Like if I, you've like open the web browser, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Type in Nate's Valvo, see yeah. if he's coming to near where you are yes. and then you can follow some links that they will provide it on the website <laughs> for purchase tickets to those shows. <laughs> uh, yeah. So time machine question is the final question of the podcast. You, mm -hmm. you can go back to any moment in your life and observe it mm -hmm. or any moment in your life and change it. What do you do? Well, of course it's all about me. Cause why wouldn't it be? Cause yeah, I love well, me. Literally about my favorite you. topic. I, uh, my, my family, so my brother and my sister and my, a bunch of my friends have done nothing but have kids in the last like five, six years of my life. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest change when you get, hit your thirties is just, it starts raining babies. And so I'm around kids a lot, around, around my nephews a lot. Uh, they're so happy. And I'm now that person that hangs out with them more than the adults at Christmas lunch. Mm -hmm. Uh, wouldn't it be pretty cool if everyone got to hang out with toddler self, yourself as a toddler, and just see how happy and stupid and silly you were before you learnt how fucked everything else is? How fun would that be? Nice. Well, I have done, you know, I've probably asked that question a hundred times of people, and that is 100% one of my f favorite answers oh, that really? anybody has oh, ever cool. given. That's nice. But that yeah. is a... What a excellent answer to that question. Of course. What, wouldn't that just be fun hmm. to go and play with yourself as a toddler? Oh, yep. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. We've, made that, we've made that man at Husey's gig angry again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I often think, I was like, oh, that was, yeah, that was. He walks by at the time. He's like, you're Same. a kitty fiddler. And he's oh, like, God. it's me. It's me that I'm. <laughs> you don't understand. This is... Will Anderson had a time machine. <laughs> and this is six-year-old me. At worst, this is interdimensional <laughs> masturbation. It's fine. 
Um, but yeah, I think that would be real cool. Yeah. Yeah. That would be real cool. Yeah. Great answer. That. I wish yeah. you all the best, my friend. Oh, I thanks think for having me. You're um, is... an excellent, excellent stand-up oh, comedian. Thanks, and, uh, and this was a, a very weird, like, holy shit moment for me today because as I said, jumping on the train, going into the comedy festival and I was like 18, 17, seeing your show. Um, you've just been this like staple comic in a, in a, in the best way possible, uh, for a lot of people. Um, and I've always loved your stuff. And when you asked me to do this podcast, I was like, oh, stoked. So thanks, man. Ah, well, it's been a pleasure to have you here, mate. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you.